All right. We're going to be in Hebrews 4. If you want to turn there. You may have heard the, the saying, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Some of you that have gone through the big picture story Bible, big kids Bible, it's kind of the theme, the basis for that Bible. Um, it's a phrase that I think think was coined or it's least, at least used a lot by um, a theologian author named Graham Goldsworthy. God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's a way of describing the big picture of what God is up to in the world, what he's been up to from the beginning, what his purpose and plan are all about. God is about gathering a people for himself to live in the place that he created for them under his good and loving rule. The Bible also calls this the kingdom of God. And you see this theme run throughout the Bible. So just real quick, this is what you had in the garden before the fall. Adam and Eve lived perfectly and contentedly as God's people in his place under his rule. And all was good. This is what was disrupted in tragic ways when mankind rebelled against God in sin. God's people rejected God's rule, thought they knew better, and were then banished from God's place that was the garden. This is what was then restored, or began to be restored, and there was hope of restoration as God chose Israel to be his people and witnesses, gave them his laws and commands so that they could live under his rule, and then brought them into the promised land, God's place. But it was never fully restored. It never came to full fruition because of their sin and idolatry. Then, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God opens up a way for this hope, God's people and God's place under God's rule, to come about in a new and better and fuller and eternal way. He makes a way for sinners like you and I to be God's people by shedding his blood for our sin, reconciling us to himself. He empowers us to live under his rule, beginning now by his spirit and in fullness in the future. And then he promises to bring us into his place, the new creation to come, of which I would say we get a taste of here and now, especially in the church, in the life of the church. God's rule is to come about, first and foremost, from here. To make this a bit more personal, this is what God is doing in your life. God wants you to be, God is calling you to be among his people, and as such, to live in his place under his rule. And he's equipping you to do that. And I start with this today because it will help us as we go through Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 is going to jump back and forth between Israel and Jesus, between God's work among the people of Israel in a specific time and God's work in Jesus, and, be, and how Israel responded and how we are to respond. We're going to need to do some biblical history today. We're going to need to connect some themes and ideas across Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. But if you keep in mind this big idea, God's people in God's place under God's rule, it will help out. Okay? Today's going to be a little bit of work. There's a lot going on in this passage. The author of Hebrews knows his Bible really well. 
probably better than most, if not all of us. So we'll start with verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So the word you want to hone in on here is the word rest. This whole passage we're going to be in today, up to verse 13, centers around this theme of rest. It's like the author did a Google search for rest in his Bible, which was the Old Testament at that time for him, for, for the author, for every reference to rest and then connected them all together. And, and we'll unpack what he means by rest as we go through this. But first, the reason he's talking about rest is, is because of something he, uh, we saw in the last chapter. The reason he's using this word in the first place, we find in chapter 3. In chapter 3, which we covered last week, the author quoted from Psalm 95. And it'll be helpful for us to set the context for where we're go going today, to read that quote. So if you go back to, to chapter 3, Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 11, you see this quote from Psalm 95. Here's what it says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So there's the word rest. He's going to repeat that last phrase a few times as we go through this. So we talked about last week that this psalm is referring to the first generation of Israelites that God rescued out of Egypt. You know the ten plagues, Moses, Pharaoh, that whole story. This exodus, as it's called, and we have a book in the Bible, right, called Exodus, is probably the most significant event in the Old Testament after creation. This is the most significant, um, filled with meaning event between creation and Jesus. God sets his love on and rescues this people from their hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt and he does so in a way that clearly shows his power and presence. He is showing them through this, and he's showing all of the world that he is their God, and they are to be his people, his witnesses. He brings them out of that place. He promises to bring them to his place, this promised land, where they will have good food, they will have protection and safety from their enemies. As they journey out of, of Egypt, God once again rescues them miraculously, um, from the Egyptian army pursuing them as they cross the Red Sea and God parts it and then brings it back down on the army. God then meets with them at Mount Sinai where he gives them the Ten Commandments, where he gives them his laws and commands to show them who he is and how they can live as his people under his rule. God is beginning to establish his people who will live in his place under his rule. And yet... What Psalm 95 is getting at is that things do not go well. The people grumble and complain. They put God to the test. After all that he had done for them, they don't trust him. As soon as things get hard, they, they give up on God and they, they trust themselves. Finally, they get near to where they're about to enter into the promised land and God, uh, they, they send a couple 
they send some men out to spy out the land and to f see what, what's in it. And they go out and they come back and they give a report. But rather than trusting in God, that God is going to do what he said and bring them into this land and, and be with them, the people grumble and complain that it would be better for if they were back in Egypt as slaves. It would be better, perhaps, if they had just died in the wilderness. In response to this, God says in Numbers 14, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, so just a repeated failure to trust God and put God to the test, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it. And so this generation does not enter God's rest, which for them, God's rest means the promised land and all of the rest that that involves, rest from wandering, from not having a home, from the dangers of their enemies, rest from rest of having God be their God and their safety and their shield and their provider. All right, so with that background, let's step back and consider what this means in Hebrews. Chapter 3, which we covered last week, was essentially saying, don't be like them. Don't be like that gener generation of Israelites who rebelled. Uh, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. We unpacked that last week. So there's a negative warning in chapter 3. Don't be like them. Don't follow that example. Chapter 4, the passage before us today, puts it a bit more positively. Chapter 4 says, this hope, this message, this promise of entering God's rest still stands, so be sure to obtain it. Now, what, is, what does this mean? Surely we're not talking about a geographical land that we're supposed to travel to and enter in like the Israelites did. And this is why I began with that saying. Ultimately, what we're talking about is God's people living in God's place under God's rule. That, I propose, gets at the meaning of rest. We'll unpack that more as we go. So in light of all that, hear verse 1 again, and then we'll move on. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In other words, there is a promise still in act today, still in place this very day, of the availability of the opportunity of becoming God's people in his place under his rule. That opportunity still stands before us even now, today. Therefore, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, I like how one commentator described this fear. He described it as the fear of a mountain climber who, knowing full well the dangers of climbing a mountain, double and triple checks all of his gear. He's very diligent and focused and careful and concerned to make sure that he is ready, that his journey will be safe. It's not a debilitating kind of fear. It's a motivating kind of fear. In light of God's promise before us today, in light of the failures of past generations missing out on God's promise, we should fear we should be diligent. We should be extra careful 
to make sure that we belong to his people, that we are his, and that his promise of rest is ours. Next couple verses unpack this a bit more. Verse 2, For good news came to them, or came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. And we're going to stop right there. Um, now you see that phrase, good news. This is the gospel. This is the same Greek word as the gospel where we get our word evangelism. So that generation of Israelites had good news. They had the good news of a promised land, of God choosing them as his people and witnesses, of God choosing to place his favor and protection on them. But they failed to benefit from the good news because they did not believe, because of their unbelief. Even though they began to taste some of the benefits of God's salvation, even though they saw God do many mighty works, they didn't trust God. As soon as there was a need to trust God more than themselves, to believe in God's words more than what they saw with their eyes, they turned from God. We were told they did this ten times. They put God to the test ten times. Their knee-jerk reaction to difficulty was to question God's goodness. Question God's presence. You might say that God was continually on the hot seat. God was continually theirs to judge. Prove yourself or else. Come through for us or else. It's helpful to realize that God wants more than to simply improve our situation. God is more than merely giving us benefits. No, he wants to save us and improve our situation and give us benefits as we turn to him and trust him and cling to him. He's calling us into a living relationship with himself that we were created for. So they had good news. We have even better news. God has worked a greater, a great salvation for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For them, their external enemies were made powerless and defeated. For us, not only are our external enemies, death, Satan, and all that would undo us, defeated, but our internal resistance to God and our internal enemies, our sin and guilt and the death it brings are defeated as well. And through this, God, we have fellowship with our creator God, beginning now and lasting into eternity. We have rest in his favor, love, and protection. Through Jesus, we become God's beloved people for whom he is preparing a place of perfect peace where we will live joyfully under his rule. But beware... It is we who have believed that enter that rest. There is a need to believe. Of course, this is what Scripture says over and over again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one, one, only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Of course, this kind of belief that we are called to is not simply agreeing to certain facts, agreeing that, yeah, there's a God, 
Jesus died as a fact of history. No, it's a personal, ongoing trust in God as my Savior, my Lord, my only hope in life and death. This kind of belief is taking God at his word, trusting him. God is honored when we trust him and his word. He's dishonored when instead we trust ourselves and take the care of our own lives into our own hands. Now, the next several verses explain from the Bible why the promise of God's rest still stands. The author is going to do some in-depth Bible study, specifically around the word rest, to show that God's rest is still available. Again, it's like he does a Google study, although, of course, he doesn't have Google. He just knows his Bible really well. And he looks for all the places that this theme of rest occurs in Scripture, and then he ties them all together. The logic in this can be a little bit difficult to follow, so we're going to read through it slowly, and I'm going to give some comments and point out some things as we go along. So we're going to read from 3 all the way through 10. So if you have your Bibles open, um, follow along as we go. So verse 3, again, we, we read the first part of it. For he who have, we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, the author is going to turn at this point to consider, he's going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 2, the first time you find rest in Scripture, on the seventh day when God rested. Although his, that's God's, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and here's, he quotes Genesis 2, 2, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what the author is saying here is that God's rest began back at creation. And in a sense, God's rest has been available. God has been calling people into his rest or calling people into fellowship with him from that, that moment. However, that first generation of Israelites out of Egypt missed out on it because of unbelief. Even though God's rest was available to them, they missed out on it. Hence, verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, God's rest, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today. And he's quoting from Psalm 95 there. Today, saying through David, Psalm 95, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, quote Psalm 95 again, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So here's what this is saying. Again, can be kind of hard to keep track with all of this. If David, in Psalm 95, is calling his generation to hear God's voice and not harden their hearts, and he is doing this so long after, and he is doing this so long after, David was so long after, that generation that missed out on the promised land, then it follows that entering God's rest is still available. God's promise, God's invitation, God's offer are open and available today. God has not given up on his plans. God did not cease his purposes to 
create a people living in his place under his rule because that generation failed. Now, if you know your biblical history, you might be wondering at this point, well, yes, that first generation failed, but the next generation was brought into the promised land. So maybe, maybe that's the end. Maybe that's the fulfillment of God's rest, of God's plans. We'll look at what Hebrews says next. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, who was Joshua? Well, Joshua was Moses' successor who did lead the people into the promised land. That next generation. But apparently, that, that didn't finish it. Apparently, the rest that they experienced as they entered the promised land was not sufficient, was not the fullness of rest that God had in plan for his people. We might say that it was merely a shadow, a foretelling, a taste, a picture of God's ultimate plan for rest. Of God's ultimate plan to bring a people, create a people for himself, Bring them into his place under his rule. I hope you have that phrase memorized by the end of this. I've said it a few times. And so the conclusion is again stated in verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So again, today there is still a chance to become God's people in God's place under God's rule. The door to fellowship with God is open. Today, if you hear his voice, like right now, when you hear God's word, when you open God's word, when you come to church, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not change the subject. Do not turn away. Do not ignore it. Do not miss out on the rest and fellowship with God because of unbelief. Now, before we press this home a bit more with the, the last couple, few verses, I want to unpack what rest means here for us a bit more. Because it can be, even in this passage, rest seems to mean various things, right? There's various levels. Like, we're not talking about going to the promised land like Israel was. There's, there's some... Some deeper meanings here. So three things to keep in mind that can help unpack and apply and give some flesh and bones to what rest means for us. First, experience the rest, experiencing the rest of God is experiencing, has to do with experiencing the finished work of God. So if you go back to rest in creation, God rested not because he was tired, but because he was finished. The work was complete. Similarly, when Jesus breathed his last on the cross and, and the work that God sent him to do was about to be done, he said, it is finished. And this is the good news that brings us rest. On the cross, God finishes the work of our cleansing and forgiving and restoring and justifying and healing. It is finished all that we could not do for ourselves. And our call as his people is to merely rest in him. Is to rest in his finished work for us. We are not called to trust in our own efforts, 
we've made in the past or will make in the future. We're not called to trust in our good resolve and willpower to live a different life. No, we are trusting in what has been completed, finished by God in Christ for us. Secondly, experiencing the rest of God is about experiencing the goodness of God all around us. It is about experiencing the goodness of God all around us. So you can think about this from the Israelites' perspective. They were to come into this good land flowing with milk and honey. I don't know if that's what you think about when you think about a good land, but good land flowing with milk and honey, a place that they would be their own, they would be protected, they would have God dwelling among them, ruling over them. God's goodness in very tangible ways would be all around them. There would be daily reminders that God was theirs, was with them, and was good. Similarly, for us, entering God's rest is about experiencing God's goodness in very tangible ways all around us. His security, his provision, his comfort, his hope, his promises, all of his good gifts. Um, first things that comes to my mind is Psalm 23. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Just a picture of God as a shepherd leading us, caring for us, providing for us, comforting us, feeding us. All just magnifies and speaks about God's goodness. And then this leads to a third and final aspect of God's rest, or at least a final one we'll consider today. While we taste it now, while it is already ours now if we are in Christ, the full experience of his rest lies in the future. This is the already not yet um, aspect to Christianity. God is bringing his people into his place to live under his rule in a full and perfect and complete way. And the Bible describes it like this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. God's goodness and only God's goodness in that day will be all around us. We will no longer doubt it, no longer question it. Every experience of ours will testify and confirm God's goodness to us. It's like being surrounded by the water. It is everything. And so as long as we live in this life of sin and suffering, there is a need for patient endurance until that day, of living diligently until that day. And this leads us to the final verses. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now that we've gone through all of this, you understand what he's saying, right? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thought and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must 
give an account. Now there's a lot in here that we don't have time to unpack all of this. Um, I would love to spend more time just talking about the nature of God's word that is put forth here. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. This is one of the reasons why we preach like this, where we, why we go through the Bible, and I don't just come up here and just spout what I think is a good idea. We let God's word lead us and have authority. But the point of these verses is to compel us, is to urge us, is to make us diligent to obtain God's rest and not miss out on it strive to enter that rest. Earlier we were told to fear, lest any of you should fail to reach it. There's a sense of urgency and weight and importance here. Today is a day of opportunity. Don't wait till tomorrow. The Word of God is living and active, which means that God sees and knows everything, knows you better than yourself. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all must give an account before Him. And there will be no hiding, no pretending on that day. There is a sort of fear in this. But I said, as I said earlier, it's not meant to be a debilitating sort of fear, but a motivating sort of fear. Like the mountain climber checking his ropes. The mountain climber is, well, if you were a mountain climber, is excited to climb up the mountain. But he knows that if he's going to make it safely, and if it's going to be a great trip, he must not be lazy or apathetic or unfocused. He fears because it is a serious task. There's an appropriate fear about that. But the seriousness of it doesn't make it somber or boring or uninteresting doesn't mean there's not great joy and excitement in it. Quite the opposite. Similarly, this is the most important task of our lives. Ensuring that we do not miss out on God's promises. And the Bible is clear that it is a serious and fearful business. There is a serious sacredness to it. And this is particularly hard for a culture like ours that's values that prizes things like spontaneity and sentimentality and pithiness that wants just endless distractions and comfort so we don't have to think about things that are actually serious. Just pretend they don't exist. But the most important and the most joyous things in life have a sense of seriousness and weight and fearfulness to them. Marriage, parenting, friendship, climbing a mountain, running a marathon, passing an exam to get into a certain career field. In all of these things, there's no contradiction between seriousness and joy and passion and life. And scripture is abundantly clear that this is the same case with life, with coming to faith in Jesus. There is... It is a, a weighty, serious task. There is great joy in it. Uh, I went to a, a conference um, that John Piper uh, has put on for many years, and the name of the conference is Serious Joy. C.S. Lewis likewise says, Joy is the serious business of heaven. So don't be put off by the seriousness of these warnings and these admonitions. Be careful of diminishing their intensity. 
The seriousness is meant to awaken us to the significance, to the magnitude, to the awesomeness, to the depths and abundance of joy and life before us if we would only come to Jesus by faith and cling to him to the end and trust that he is, in fact, clinging to us. Let's pray.